0: I'm worried about the kids who get this, the teenagers who get maligned as awful bigots, racists, xenophobes, transphobes, just for having an opinion that may not go with the, you know, the mainstream now. How the media shames people out of an honestly held or a religiously held opinion on controversial issues. And it's going to get worse unless people speak up.
1: If you followed political commentary at all this century, you know Megyn Kelly. One of the most influential voices on the political scene for well over a decade she's been at the forefront of political news covering elections hosting debates providing commentary since she began at fox news in 2004. at fox she hosted multiple hit shows including the wildly popular america live as well as the unbelievably popular the kelly file after leaving fox in 2017 she went on to host megan kelly today on nbc a self-made media giant megan has been one of the strongest voices for real female empowerment as opposed to the toxic brand of modern feminism that's so often peddled in the media. Now, having left behind traditional television, Megan has moved into my territory, the world of podcasting. Her new show, The Megan Kelly Show, premiered last month. With her hard-hitting commentary and an incredible slate of staggeringly illustrious guests, such as, well, me, and probably some others, the show has been an instant success. As successful as Megan has been in her career, she's also repeatedly found herself embroiled in controversy. From her challenges at Fox News, to her feud with Donald Trump, to her tumultuous relationship with NBC, Megan and I discussed all of the facts and explored what the media just got plain wrong. There's more to the story than you might think. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, hey, and welcome. This is the Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special. Just a reminder, we'll be doing some bonus questions at the end of the show with Megan Kelly. The only way you can get access to that part of the conversation is to become a member Head on over to DailyWire.com, become a member. You'll have access to all of the full conversations with every one of our awesome guests. Megan, thanks so much for joining the show.
0: Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. Good to see you.
1: So, uh, obviously, we're recording this slightly in advance of when it's going to come out, so the state of the race could change. But let, let's talk, obviously, from the, from the outset about what you see the state of the race as with regard to President Trump and, and Joe Biden. It seems like there have been all of these dramatic events, but one thing stays fairly consistent, and that is the polling data. The polling data seems to consistently suggest a large national lead for Joe Biden uh, and a pretty solid state lead for Biden in most of the swing states. And even the states that shouldn't be swing states seem pretty close. How do you gauge this election right now?
0: Well, right now, Trump's losing. I, I think that's true because Biden's ahead in every poll in virtually every state and has been steadily but I almost view it as a basketball game, Ben, where, you know, I don't really watch a lot of basketball, but Doug puts it on and I keep an eye on it. And what I've realized over the years is you only ever need to tune in for the last two minutes of a basketball game. There's no point in watching the whole game. Uh, all Everything that determines what's going to happen is the last two minutes. And I think these margins are probably going to tighten significantly before we get to November 3rd. And people are still deciding whether they're really going to vote for Biden. I mean, disaffected Republicans, they may not like Trump, but it's a big thing to vote for a guy who's going to pack the Supreme Court with a bunch of Democrats and change, you know, basically get rid of the head of the third branch of government. And like, that's So I do, I do think people are still wrestling with some of that and that we'll see a tightening. And if it gets tighter, you know, as, as tight as we saw with Trump and Hillary, then he's back in business. But the one caveat to that is, don't forget what happened last time was a couple days before the election, Jim Comey came out with, there's news hidden documents on the computer, Uma Abedin has them, and Anthony Weiner was back in the news because he was harboring them, and that's how they found them, blah, blah, blah. And that was a huge game changer for Trump. I mean, I I remember being on the set with Sean. Sean Hannity was coming on after the Kelly File was done, and he had been saying, like, I can't quite get him to 270. I can get him to 267. I can't quite get him to 270. He came in the studio that night, and he goes, he's back! He's back! So... You know, we'll see if there's an October surprise that really helps him like that. But right now, he, he does. He's got some ground to make up for sure.
1: Well, what was pretty amazing is that if you look at some of the polling data on the underlying issues, Trump really in like a normal election cycle should be walking away with this thing. There was a Gallup poll that came out this week that showed 56 percent of Americans say they're better off now than they were four years ago which is normally the key question when you are having a re-election race is are you better off now than you were four years ago? Right, there was a That same poll showed that 49% of Americans said that they liked Trump's policies as opposed to 46% of Americans who like Joe Biden's policies. And yet it's getting just absolutely swamped in the, in the national polling data. And it does lend support to the idea that many of us have been saying on the conservative side of the aisle for a long time, which is that the Trump administration in terms of performance has been quite good. If we could just somehow, you know, pare away <laughs> all of the affect, which is what a lot of the fans seem to like, then this would not be a close race and he would actually be winning at this point.
0: Yeah, I know. But you know what? It, there's no question Trump does a lot of self-inflicted wounds. You know, like tweeting or calling calling Kamala Harris a monster. That's not smart. That's not smart politics. Who are you going to reach? What woman sitting at home in suburban Philadelphia is going to be like, yeah, now I'm voting for him. Um, so, you know, the goal <laughs> is to widen the tent at this point, widen. And there's no more necessary appeals to his base. They're with him. So, like, just a little bit wider and, like, just a, a little bit of self-restraint. I don't have any problem with all of, like the helicopter ride to the hospital after or to the White House after COVID. That, that's just Trump being his dramatic self. But I will say, especially having watched this race as more of a consumer over the past two years, as opposed to an anchor, he is fighting the media. He does have a third enemy in this. And he recognized it early on and he knew he had to demonize the media, make them quote the enemy. Um, but they actually are his enemy. And you know you know that the press coverage of him has been 90% negative and continues to be. They're completely unfair to him. And there are still very fair-minded people out there consuming the news, not understanding that, still trusting what they're hearing on CNN. And I, I think it's been a huge problem for Trump. If he loses, I think the media will have had a
1: lot to do with it. So let's talk about that. So I want to kind of reframe and, and talk about your career in the media because you've really been able to experience the media from all sides. I mean, you, you went from being... Uh, sort of a a local reporter all the way up to the biggest anchor on Fox News. And then you moved over to the so-called mainstream media and you worked in those halls. So I want to talk about how the media runs from all these different perspectives. We'll talk about that in just one second. But first, we need to talk about life insurance. It is Halloween this month, and Policy Genius would love to mark the occasion by making something less scary: life insurance. Now, shopping for life insurance can seem like a daunting task. Policy Genius makes it easy. They combine a cutting-edge insurance marketplace with help from licensed experts to save you time and money. Right now, you could save 50% or more by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance. When you're shopping for a policy that could last for more than a decade, those savings really start to add up. So here's how it works. First, you head over to policygenius.com in minutes. You can work out how much coverage you need, and you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. Policy Genius will compare policies starting at as little as $1 a day. You might even be eligible to skip that in-person medical exam, which is super convenient. Once you apply, Policy Genius handles all the paperwork and the red tape. The best part, they work for you, not the insurance company. So if you had any speed bumps during the application process, they'll take care of everything for you. There's a reason Policy Genius has a five-star rating across over 1,600 reviews on Trustpilot and Google. So if you need life insurance, Head on over to policygenius.com right now to get started. Remember, you could say 50% or more by comparing, quotes. policy genius when it comes to insurance. It's nice and super important to get it right. Let's talk about your media career because a lot of people don't actually know your background. They just know that you're really famous and that you're really popular, but they don't know kind of your early beginnings. So how did you get to be, you know, Megyn Kelly, who was on Fox News, which is where most people, I think, on the conservative side of the aisle first saw you?
0: Well, I used to be a lawyer. I mean, I'm still a lawyer, but I used to be a practicing attorney. And I did that for about nine and a half years and then was miserable You just realized. I know you know the experience. Um, I, I lasted a little longer than, than you did in the game. But, you know, I really loved it. I, I like you, had a humble background. And for me, becoming Megan Kelly Esquire, it was such an ego boost. I was so proud of myself. I thought people are going to have to take me seriously now. You know, I didn't go to Harvard. I went to Albany. But still, I'm just saying, like, as a young woman coming up, nobody in my family was a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. So it was like, okay, this is something. So I held on to it a lot longer because uh, it meant something to me, to me as a human. But over and over and over, you, there's only so many years you can spend that unhappy in uh, doing what you're doing. And it wasn't because of my law firm or my colleagues. It was just the job itself is, it's pretty soul cr- crushing. And and the grind of it was, ugh, I just, I couldn't anymore. So what happened was I actually went to visit a friend of mine in Boston who has zero dough. She's a nurse and she was living not very well off, you know, and we had such a good time. And I was just reminded of my own roots, like, I don't, I don't need all this money. I, I am totally happy with my friend in the bar getting 50 cent beers. Like, I'm good. This is kind of what I need and nothing much more. And I came back to Chicago and after a series of events, I just decided I was going to try to do something else. Um... One thing led to another. A woman in my guitar class worked at the WMAQ, which is the Chicago Ono, for NBC. She offered to help me make a resume tape. I did it. I cold called a bunch of news directors. I wound up walking the tape in to the office of Bill Lord uh, down in Washington because my husband and I, my first husband, had had moved to Baltimore at that point. And that poor sucker put me on TV. And I, I did it part time while practicing law for about a year. And then I gave my tape to Kim Hume at Fox, and they hired me in the D.C. Bureau.
1: And so what was it like working as a a reporter as opposed to working as sort of the anchor? Uh, Because, again, you've worked in a a bunch of these different roles.
0: I loved it. Uh, Honestly, like that was some of my most fun times in in journalism. It was great because when I first got hired, I thought I was going to be more of a legal correspondent and maybe commentator. Um, And I was getting ready to go in. I was going to work just Fridays just to begin. I was still practicing law. And uh, I said to Bill Lord, because the the first day was a day when Hurricane Isabel, or I can't remember Isabel, was coming through. And I was like, oh, you don't need me, right? Like, that has nothing to do with my skills. And he was like, if you don't have a raincoat, a rain slicker, and rain boots, you better get them and get in here. I'm like, oh, God. So I go in that night. They didn't put me on the air that night, but I, I went in. I sat in the control room. It was the first time I'd ever been in a control room, which was so chaotic on a breaking news night like that. You've got reporters all over and they're getting blown around by the hurricane-like winds. And I will never forget, um, I'll I'll clean it up for your audience, but there was this one guy, they were trying to get him on. His name was Eric Hong. He's a reporter. And they couldn't get him on. They were coming to you, coming to you. And then somebody, other feed came in and and they couldn't get him on. And the EP yelled at him, you're not getting on. WJLA effed you. They effed you. I'm like, oh my God. It's like a crazy environment in here. And that really was an appropriate introduction to news, which is it's, it's ugly behind the scenes and it's not highbrow in any way. And uh, it was a good introduction because I'll tell you this, Ben, when I first started at Fox, I was frustrated because there's no achieving perfection in the news. It's just you can't. You don't have enough time. You don't have enough staff. And it's not the way news works. But in the law, you can come near perfection in your brief, in your argument, in your presentation. Everyone looks good all the time. And I, I was frustrated. And uh, I remember talking to Kim Hume. And I was like, you know, it's, it's hard, because I am used to sort of the American Airlines first class cloth, napkin, real silverware service to my audience, to my clients. And she goes, yeah, we're Southwest Airlines. <laughs> and she was right. It was just, you got to get, get a little grittier if you're going to go into news, and especially cable news. And as it turns out, that wound
1: up suiting me just fine. So when you started off, you were doing the, the sort of objective news stuff. And then obviously you moved into Kelly file, in which case your perspective was allowed to come out a little bit more. So what was the difference between doing those two things? Because we see now this complete merger of, of the two. And obviously, you look at CNN, where they promote Chris Cuomo as an objective news anchor or Don Lemon as an objective news anchor. But you made a pretty stark division in your own career from objective news reporter to Megyn Kelly of the Kelly file, where your perspective was incredibly clear and you were pretty open about it. Uh, what What was the difference between those two roles?
0: Well, I mean, I think that you can, you can maintain your journalistic cred um, by being open and honest about what you're opining on and when it's opinion and what you won't opine on. You know, I don't understand being, calling yourself a credible news anchor and going out there and openly ripping on President Trump and everything he does every night and calling him a bad man and evil and, and a racist. Like, that's not reporting. That's, a, that's pure opinion. And I feel like you go there and you, you can no longer call yourself a straight news reporter. However, I was never hesitant to call somebody who is, you know, driving 200 miles an hour down the highway while a woman's pushing her baby in a baby stroller an idiot. And I think that sort of is what distinguished me from some other people on the air. I would take more editorial risks like that on what I considered common sense issues that weren't incredibly divisive. And what my, my main commitment was, was to the facts. And when people veered offline, when it came to the facts, I always hit them in the head. It was like, get back, stay right, stay in the right lane. And that's how this discussion is going to go. And so I think, I mean, I'm seeing it now with the Black Lives Matter narrative. Like if you just stick with the facts, like what are the numbers when it comes to police shootings? What, what are the racial divisions? What is the, what are the crime statistics? People freak out but they just want you to say what they want you to say. But as you know, facts don't care about your feelings, as somebody really smart always says. And, um, I'm in that lane. Like, I I don't care if you don't like it. These are the facts. And we can't have a reasonable argument unless we stick to that. So I think it sort of stuck out a bit as like she's different. And she, you know, she's saying she's defending the police. It's like, well, if the facts are defensive of them, then yes, I guess so. I'm defending the facts. Anyway, that's sort of how it went. And I always tried to hold on to my objectivity. Like, even when Trump was coming up and uh, he was very controversial. A lot of Republicans didn't like him. I was never out there night after night being like, he's terrible. How could the Republicans do this? I would just report on him fairly. Then I defended him on a lot of the BS being thrown at him. And then when he did something really you know, crazy, like saying Judge Curiel couldn't decide his Trump University case because he was of Hispanic heritage, I hit him. You know, like as a lawyer, I always felt comfortable giving my opinion. So anyway, it's, it's a bit of a hybrid approach, but I would submit it, is, it looks nothing like what we're seeing now in the media with people like Don Lemon, who's just a joke, and Chris Cuomo, who's much more worried about his muscles than he is about the facts. I just can't watch CNN anymore, and I'm angry about it, because I used to like CNN, but those days are gone.
1: So let's talk about your career at Fox News. Obviously, you've been involved in pretty much every high-profile Fox News story uh, for the last, what, 10 years? Uh, And uh, and that really began with, uh, I mean, now in retrospect, uh, Roger Ailes, who obviously was a genius at what he did at Fox News, but also happened to be, it turns out, like a really terrible person. So what exactly uh, was your relationship with Roger Ailes? And, and what was your perspective on how he ran Fox News?
0: You know, can I start with this? On, on I want to start with this, because was Roger a terrible person? He was a flawed man. He was a deeply flawed man. He was also, in some ways, a great man. And I remember talking to a friend of mine who's in PR. She's a Democrat, but I remember saying, well, you know, what should I say when people ask me w- whether he was awful or raised that? because i I have really mixed feelings about it. And she said, "You just say he was terrible. That's it. Just say he was terrible. And i the truth is i it's more nuanced than that. You know, I can't speak to all these guys who have gone down. it's I think it's really hard to see how Harvey Weinstein could be a great guy. Um, but in Rogers case, I spent enough time with him that, I know how magnanimous he was, how, what good care he took of so many employees, what a strong leader he was, how clever he was, what a patriot he was, how much he loved the armed forces and did so much for them. I just, it's hard to completely write him off as awful because of this other side, even though the other side is indefensible. Um, so anyway, just to start with that, when, when he first hired me, it was we got along well. I knew right from the start he was sort of bawdy, and frankly, so am I. So I, I didn't judge that. I, as you know, I don't speak the Queen's English and I'm totally fine with 12 year old boy humor. And, uh, I just, it's tough to offend me. So we, we got along great. And I kind of liked that about him as I would later find out as much better than the alternative of like, you know, the, the broadcast world of like everyone, but us is awful. And, um, then he started sort of taking me up into his office and the, the conversations veered because it'd be like two hour sessions where you go in there and talk to him and, and he would always lock the door, which is, you know, you don't want your boss to lock your door uh, when, when you go in there. And um, it's just sort of more from like body talk to directly sexual talk directed at you. And as a woman, you're sitting there like, oh, God, you know, like, I don't, I don't want this. Like, I can see what he's doing. And you're like, I don't want this because I'm making it. I'm making my bones here. Like, I am reporting well. I'm breaking news. It was right during the Duke lacrosse scandal that I was covering for Fox. And I was breaking a lot of stories on that. And you can, th- what, what you're thinking in your head is, I'm going to have to reject him at some point, And then my career is derailed. Like, it's over. No man wants to be rejected by a woman. And no man that is rejected by a woman then has good feelings about her after the fact. These are facts of human nature. And so when you suddenly realize the relationship has morphed for him into a different lane, and you're slower in this lane, you're scared. You know, you you know what's coming. And really all you want to do is like shrink down to your smallest self and hope he stops noticing you, which is directly the opposite of what you're hoping in the professional lane, right? You want him to notice you. So it's very complicated. And I for the longest time just pretended I wasn't hearing what I was hearing. I just laughed it off. And then it got to the point where I could no longer pretend because he grabbed me and tried to make out with me three times in his office. And I basically ran out the door. So <laughs> that's tough to ignore. Long story short, Ben, after that, I just ignored him. I did report this to a supervisor at Fox News who gave me the advice of just ignore him. He's going through a rough time in his marriage. It'll be fine. And I was happy to have that, that advice. You know, I'm like, okay, he took a shot. Men do that. Um, and that was kind of the end of it. And then when the whole Gretchen Carlson thing came up, and I have, there's no love lost between me and Gretchen. I, I'm not a fan of hers, and I don't think she's a fan of mine. Um, but the question was being put to people directly, is he capable of this? And everybody was rushing to the camera saying he's not capable, no no way, it's not possible, not this man. And I was like, I don't know about that. I feel uncomfortable. And then I was told by somebody close to Roger on his team that they had managed to limit the investigation into him to just his immediate small circle of people and that, or her, her immediate, Gretchen's immediate small circle of people on her show which would not include any talent, which wouldn't include sort of any of the more prominent females at the company. And that was when I knew I, I had to come forward. Like, I, I didn't know what he was, but I knew they had to take a real look at it. Like, so they needed a real investigation. And that's that's what they wound up doing. So he fell. He died not long after that. And I cried when he died. And I talked to Janice Dean, who was in the whole thing with me. We, we were so, shoulder to shoulder on all of it. She had a story with him. And To this day, I feel sad about And I feel sad about what's going on at Fox because I think it's a lot different than it used to be when he was at the helm. Um, And so I think we really lost something. We lost something when he died and when he left Fox, but it was because of Roger. You know, that's what people lose sight of, who get mad at me or get mad at the women who come forward. He he cost himself and the rest of us his leadership. So anyway, it's still a sad subject for me. And, um, you know, one that's just not, it's not black and white.
1: It does go to media bias in a different way, which is, of course, that uh, Hollywood then goes ahead and makes an entire movie based on this uh, in which you're portrayed by Charlize Theron, and they never even bother to call you up and ask for any of your input on the script. So they're telling largely your story uh, without ever having asked you a single question. I-, I want to get your thoughts on that.
0: Well, they clearly stole my book. I mean, I when I saw the movie, I was like, oh, somebody's been reading my book. Mo- it's Settle for More. It's still available online. Um, and so I was like, well, that's interesting. Like, I, nobody offered me the, a check for that, which I wouldn't have taken. Actually, I did get a purchase offer for the book, and I, I said no, but it wasn't from them. Um, so I don't know. It, I also had mixed feelings about the movie, which, yeah, I had no involvement with, but I thought, okay, it's good to shine a light on sexual harassment, because there's still a lot of young women out there who have no clue how to deal with it when it happens to them. And I, I like that piece of it. It's like, here's, a, here's what happened. Here, take from it what you will. But I knew they were going to portray Fox News as you know, just some parody of itself and that they were going to rip on people I loved in ways that were unfair. And indeed, they did. Brian Kilmeade in particular took it on the chin in a way that was really unfair, really unfair. Um, they don't care, right? They just And they made Roger, they, they tried to get to some of his humanity, but they really made him look like a monster. Um, and I watched it, Ben, and it was really just, it was painful for me for so many reasons, the ones I've outlined. And also because I lost a lot of friends at Fox as a result of that. You know, there were Roger loyalists in the building who just couldn't forgive me. And uh, it still makes me upset to this day. They, they just don't understand. Um, so, you know, you move on. But the media, of course, has they, they love to take down Roger Ailes. And they played up that story way more um, than some of the other stories of Democrats falling. And uh, there, there's no accident. You know, there's no there's a reason that there, was, there were all these films about Roger Ailes, right? Like there was the Showtime one, and then there was the Bombshell one, and there was some other third one. Meanwhile, I've seen like one little film about Harvey that got no numbers that was like quietly released. Like, okay,
1: he was a serial rapist. So you tell me which one is bigger. <laughs> and then meanwhile, uh, they, they've somehow continued to portray you as the villainous, no, no matter what the situation is. So let's talk about sort of, uh, what happened on Fox News that prompted your move to, to NBC? So, you're, you're on Fox News. You've got these enormous ratings. I remember because you were kind enough to have me on your show at the time. You always it was, it rated for you me. So ratings I appreciate king. that. Oh, thank you. I appreciate Well, I mean, it was your show. Uh, and uh, and then the 2016 election cycle comes about, and the whole Trumpian split happens, in which everybody is divvied up into you're either pro Trump or you're anti Trump. There is no middle. And uh, in which Trump uh, took a uh, personal offense to you asking him difficult questions specifically about his treatment of women. I want to ask you about that in just one second. But first, let's talk about something really important you can do for yourself or your family. I'm talking about preserving those family memories. I mean, out in the garage right now, you got old film reels, you got VHS tapes. Do you even have a VCR anymore? Of course you don't. You have a bunch of old pictures. None of them are digitized, but you need them in digital format so that you can move around with them, so that you can view them on your computer, so you can print new copies. Well, how can you accomplish this massive task, taking all of these old these old materials and transferring them over to digital? The process from start to finish is easy with Legacy Box. You pack and you send. Legacy Box digitizes everything by hand and then you enjoy. You get back perfectly preserved digital copies on Thumb Drive, DVD, or the cloud, now ready to watch and share and enjoy. They've thought of everything. They even provide state-of-the-art tracking. They send you updates at every step of the process. Send your precious recorded moments to a company you can trust. Legacy Box was founded by college roommates Nick and Adam over a decade ago. I know them. They are great dudes. Today, Legacy Box is the world's largest digitizers of home movies and photos. Over 850,000 families have trusted them to digitally preserve their past. They've got a team of over 200 trained technicians. Everything is digitized by hand at their 50,000 square foot processing campus in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Rediscover those glory days by digitizing all of your irreplaceable heirlooms with Legacy Box. Go to legacybox.com slash Shapiro. Get an incredible 40% off your first order. by today. Take advantage of this exclusive offer. Then send in the Legacy Box when you're ready. Go to legacybox.com slash Shapiro. Save 40% while supplies last. Okay, so let, let's talk about the uh, the Trump, election cycle. So uh, you are tapped to moderate uh, some of the Republican debates. And you, of course, ask Trump some pretty tough questions about his treatment of women in the past, to which he says that he only did it to Rosie O'Donnell and such. Uh, and then he gets very angry at you. And uh, you are one of the first into the dunk tank when it comes to if Donald Trump is angry at you, then all of his supporters are also angry at you. Uh, and this turns into a very polarized environment for you at Fox. And I wonder if you talk about that a little bit.
0: Well, that was a hard time, and in the moment, I wasn't sure if he was really angry or if he was just using me as just another storyline, which Trump likes to create, and now I think he was genuinely angry in response to that question, and I don't actually even think it had so much to do with the question itself as he felt betrayed by me. He thought that I was at Fox, I liked him, which I did like him, but, you know, I liked them all. I liked Ben Carson, too, but I basically accused him of being an idiot in my question to him that night, but he didn't complain, right, The the way Trump did. Um, You know, it's not not beanbag. It's a political debate for the presidency. Like, you're going to give him your your fastball. And, you know, for the record, Trump handled it very well. Like, his answer was just fine. Like, hey, I'm going to say what I say. People are sick of this PC nonsense. And we have fun. You don't like it. Too bad. Great. That's vintage Trump. Uh, So if he hadn't chosen to make a thing out of it, it wouldn't have become a thing. But it was very hard because you could feel the fracturing of the audience. It was sort of at that point the more sort of Trumpian wing, which at that point was more of the Breitbart wing, and then the more National Review type Republicans who were like more old school Republicans who didn't, they were more Mitt Romney types, or really just sort of mainstream. It didn't have to be a Mitt Romney thing. And Roger was really desperate to keep those two factions together as our audience and did not want this war, which is already happening. It wasn't just because of me, it was already happening in the Republican Party. I just, I was a piece of it because of Trump. And, um, I I felt like people were misunderstanding. I wanted people to go back and just look at the debate in in whole and see the questions that we asked of all of them, right? They were all really hard and they were great. And the Republicans did great that night. They It was like the highest rated debate ever, right? At that point. Um, anyway, there was no standing him down. So I just decided to ignore it and ignore it as much as I could. But it just blew up my life. You know, it was like, it wasn't like mean tweets, which are like, oh, that's not nice. It was security threats, like people showing up at my house in the middle of the night and scary stuff, you know, like getting in my face when I'm on the street with my kids. Um, you know, like when some strange man comes and approaches you and yells at you on the streets of New York in a threatening manner, you're with your children. You like, as a, as a woman, especially, you're kind of like, I don't know where where is this going and what am I going to do if this escalates? And you never want to give anybody um, a videotape, right? You don't want to have a fight. You certainly don't want to have a physical fight. But there was just a lot of that. And I, I didn't understand it. It was like, it was a tough question. Um, so anyway, I think Trump saw me and that storyline as a way of telegraphing to his base that there was no one he wouldn't stand up to. Um, establishment media, uh, Fox anchor, like Fox, he wasn't beholden to Fox. Roger Ailes, not beholden to him. And I think that's why Trump's poll numbers went up after that whole thing. It wasn't like a verdict necessarily on me or Fox or the question. It was a verdict on, I like this guy who doesn't give a damn about what people say about him. He's going to buck convention. He's going to wreck everything. And I, that's what we need. We need the guy in that package to go to Washington and wreck a system that isn't working for us. And that's where it landed. I will say for the record, as mean as things got online and you know people write terrible things about me and so on, my ratings never went down. In fact, they only went up. They never suffered.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that is one of the great lies. There, there are two great lies, I think, about the, the take on Trump, particularly in the right-wing media during 2016. One was that uh, if you went anti-Trump, you did so specifically for the ratings, which was crazy. Uh, and and the, the other lie was that if you, uh, was that if you went to anti-Trump, you would lose your entire base. And you, these, these two lies were being maintained at the exact same time. One was that you were doing it for the ratings, and the other was it would kill your ratings if you're critical of Trump. And it turns out that people can hold more than one thought in their head at the exact same time. Moving on from kind of where you were at Fox News, so you decide that you're, you're basically ready to move on. Uh, what were the factors that went into the decision making? Because at the time, you were the highest rated show on Fox News. You were the biggest anchor on, on the right. And now you've decided to move on and go not only to network news, you went over to NBC, but also to, to do something completely different, right? Do something much softer, sort of a return to uh, your journalistic roots a little bit. Uh, what, what prompted that decision?
0: Well, I mean, not unlike when I left the law, I was—I went headfirst in the brick wall of unhappiness. And I know people loved the Kelly file, and I actually loved the Kelly file too. I miss it. I wish I could—I wish I could watch a show like that now as a news consumer. Um, but I wasn't happy at all in my personal life. I. You know, the life of a cable news anchor, especially primetime news anchor, is not pleasant. It's not good. I don't know a lot of really joyful cable news primetime hosts. It's, it's, it's like working in the Coliseum for a living. Every day is another fight, another attack, another person calling you something awful, and then having to have big meetings about it, and what are we going to do? And you know this isn't who you are, and you know your base understands, your base audience understands it's not you, but you got to fight some war, and then your kids are seeing this stuff, and it's like, oh, my God. So you got to get a thick skin, but you also do have to devote a lot of time to controversy. And then, you know, now it's to the point where you're getting attacked by all the other news anchors too. And then after the Roger thing, I was, you know, getting attacked by some people internally. Uh, So it was fighting, fighting, fighting nonstop. And in the meantime, you look at my home life and like you, I have a very tight family. I have, I, I wound up getting a divorce with my first husband back in 2006. And I met, met, married Doug, my husband. Now we have a great marriage and we've worked really hard for it, and I, I'm proud of it. And we have three great kids, and I wasn't seeing any of them. I mean, I basically wasn't mothering my own children. And I don't, you can say it's sexist, I don't care what anybody says, it, it wasn't, I wasn't happy. I wanted to mother my own kids. And I know this is sexist, to say that I think women have a, have a, a special desire to be with their children, maybe more so than a lot of men. Um, that's, that happens to be my belief. And for me, it was insurmountable, I was not able to be sort of the Wall Street dad who went to work at 6 a.m. and came home at 11 p.m. and never saw his children during the day. I, I couldn't do it. And my kids were little Ben, When I left the Kelly file, they were three, five, and seven. They were babes, you know, and I, I, I could still be there. I hadn't missed the whole thing. So it's like, on the one hand, my professional life is really unhappy, and I'm not enjoying it. And on the other hand, my home life, which I really want to be at, is not available to me. You know, it's not, it's not there. So, I asked myself, like, what do I want to do? What do I want to do? And Fox offered me a bunch of money to stay. And I just thought, there's, no, there's not enou- enough money. That I don't want to live like this. I don't care. I could, I could go back and have the 50-cent beers like my nurse friend in Boston. I don't care. Now, I didn't have to do that because NBC made me a nice offer. But the reason I chose them, and this is where I went wrong, was they were like, you can do a morning show. You can be home by noon to be with your kids. And we'll still use you on the big nights, like election nights and so on, so I could still sort of do my politics coverage when I wanted. I'm like, all right, that's a decent compromise. So I was looking at the landscape, even back then, I'm like, I'm not going to go to CNN. I'm definitely not going to MSNBC, right? So those are those two are out. So it kind of leaves the three main networks for something more reasonable. And there's really not going on a lot going on at CBS. ABC did offer me a role, but I didn't find it that attractive. And then there was NBC that said, here's this thing: you can do something that maybe more uplifting to the world. And then go home and be with your kids. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna try it. I'll try something new. I'll, tr- I'll exercise a new muscle, and it was the most stressful year and a half of my life. And um, you know, I was. I'll tell you this: a lot of my fans have been like, hated the ending. You know, it, w- it wasn't fair. But I will say, death. I will say, Ben, that w- when you're dying, death by a thousand cuts, sometimes the big machete is a mercy. You know, that's how it was for me. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, from the outside and as somebody with whom uh, I consider as friends, uh, you know, watching how NBC News set you up to to fail. I mean, they they set you up from the very outset almost. I mean, the very first show that you did, you did this pretty hard-hitting interview with Alex Jones. And it was clear from all of the promotional materials that you were not going to be soft peddling Alex Jones. And then the entire media decided that, in fact, you'd become a propagandist on behalf of Alex Jones uh, in (laughs) the media. And this was like the very first episode, right? And Alex Jones is a pretty important figure at the time because Trump had been talking with him and had been doing his show and and all of this sort of stuff. And the media set it up as, here's Megyn Kelly, who's now promoting a crazed conspiracy theorist. And NBC didn't really defend you in any way. They just sort of left you out there to hang. And to me, from the outside, it looked like, okay, here's an early indicator of how this thing is going to go. All of the conservative... Preconceived notions about what exactly it's like in the world of mainstream media are correct
0: The Alex Jones thing was was nuts because it was like suddenly a new rule was imposed where we, we only get to interview the good guys. That's it. No journalist can interview. And meanwhile, I'm like, Diane Sawyer interviewed Jeffrey Dahmer, and there wasn't this guy kind of, like as far as I know, <laughs> Alex Jones hasn't, hasn't eaten anybody. okay, so spare me. <laughs> and like CNN did an in-depth invest, uh, interview with Alex Jones right after the Newtown massacre. It was right after he was saying all this crazy stuff. They didn't even touch on most of it. They they gave him a total pass. The New York Times interviewed Alex Jones. I could go on. Nothing. No one said boo. But Megyn Kelly wants to do it. And it's like the the National Enquirer had a cover um, with me on it at the time that with a caption, most hated mom in America. Like, Oh my God. And my neighbor down at, we have a house at the Jersey Shore, my neighbor, she ran in there, her name is Kitty, and she took all the magazines down and she was like, how dare you? She shops in here with her children. She was getting all the magazines and, you know, throwing in her car. So it was otherworldly because I I was like, you know, I mean, you could go down the list. Charles Manson, all these murderers who have been interviewed on television, but somehow Alex Jones was a bridge too far. And I 100% stand by that interview. They pointed to the fact that some of the Newtown families didn't want it to happen, and that I understand. But the truth of that is six of the Newtown families objected, and nineteen were either very pro or at a minimum neutral. So that didn't get covered, you know, but you can't you you can't do news coverage that way based on, on who might get upset. You have to do the news. And he was in the news and Trump was circulating publicly. Alex Jones's information and stuff from InfoWars. And it was high time somebody took a hard look at him.
1: And I think it was pretty quickly after that that Trump actually stopped trafficking as much with InfoWars. So obviously it had it had some impact. So what was the relationship like with the NBC executives? Because it really did feel like they were hanging you out to dry. Like they put you out there and then within five minutes of putting you out there, it felt like they just completely disappeared. Like Normally a network defends its own anchors. Normally a network will actually protect its own anchors. And you see this with anchors who who say incredibly controversial things. I mean, Fox News routinely will defend Tucker if Tucker says something that's controversial. You see CNN continues to defend its anchors, but NBC really just sort of, it felt like they cut you off at the knees looking at it from the outside. Well,
0: let me put it to you this way. There are very few network executives as steely spined as Lachlan Murdoch, Roger Ailes, Suzanne Scott, and Jay Wallace. Very few. (laughs) Precious few. And, um, You know, I talked about Roger earlier, you know, when I was at Fox, he would 100% have your back. If any controversy came your way, the first thing he would do is go run in front of the bullet and take it for you. And um, if I I may put it this way, not every network executive is as brave or as strong or as smart as that. And um, that's all I'm going to say.
1: So looking at at sort of your tenure on the mornings uh, in, in NBC, the long knives were out very early in terms of everybody looking at the ratings and saying the ratings were not good. And, of course, they were saying that from, like, the, the, the very beginning, when normally when you transition from one anchor to another, there, of course, is a sort of lead time before you can start to build ratings. So how much of what happened at NBC do you think was about the ratings? And and how much do you think it was about politics?
0: Well, um, I mean, we were, we were building in the ratings. Our numbers were going up. And our advertising revenue was going way up. Like, we were making more money on that show than the show had been making prior. So the advertisers loved it. Um, and we did. We needed some time. You know, I talked to Hoda and, and uh, Kathy Lee about their show, and it was a bomb in the ratings the first couple of years, a bomb. But they let him stay on, and they, they didn't start actually doing positive ratings until five years into the gig. So especially morning television, it takes some time. Um, and we were on a good trajectory, but of course we did, hadn't gotten it done in the short time that I was on the air there. I do think, you know, I'll say this: I was out there defending Brett Kavanaugh a lot on NBC. I was and remain horrified by what happened to him. I thought it was grossly unfair. I I gave Christine Blasey Ford a fair hearing, both on the air and in my own mind. I I listened to her. I thought it was worthwhile hearing what she had to say. I had no problem with, like, sizing her up. Everybody who came after that was a joke. Everybody. And, 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 like, not only... we, We all go to Julie Swetnick, the one who made the ridiculous gang rape stuff through Michael Avenatti, which is a farce. But when I was at NBC, people forget this one. They went to air with a report that Brett Kavanaugh's old girlfriend, that, that the girlfriend's mother remembered her daughter telling her that Brett Kavanaugh had shoved her into a brick wall uh, back when they were dating several years ago. And they, they put, it was all anonymously sourced. They, they were just saying, somebody has told us this is the mother saying this. They put that on the air. Now keep in mind, this is a network that would not put on the Harvey Weinstein allegations, even though they had Rose McGowan and other women on the record saying he was a predator, right? Rose McGowan was on the record saying he raped me We don't have our facts yet. We can't go with it. Now you got like anonymous person saying the mother of somebody said, the woman once said is like a triple hearsay. They put it on the air. Somebody else winds up tracking down the actual girlfriend who is like 100% untrue. None of that ever happened. He's an amazing guy. That's the kind of reporting that was going on about Brett. And I was there trying to be my lawyerly self and look at the facts. And I'll just say this. It was like the old Sesame Street song. Like one of these things is not like the others. And uh, I think I felt that while I was there.
1: So in a second, I wanna ask you about the controversy, of course, that that was really the excuse for them to get rid of you. (laughs) I mean, it was pretty obvious what was going on right there. I'm gonna ask you about that in just one second. First, let's talk about protecting your online data. Now, when you use the bathroom, you always close the door behind you, right? I mean, you don't want randos looking at you. That'd be weird and strange. So why would you let people look in at your internet activity? Using the internet without ExpressVPN, is like going to the bathroom and not closing the door. Did you know your ISP, Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, they know every single website you visit? And what's worse, they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. ExpressVPN puts a stop to all of this. It creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so your online activity can't be seen by anybody. I use ExpressVPN on all my devices. It works on everything, phones, laptops, even routers. So if somebody's sharing your Wi-Fi, they can be protected, even if they don't personally have ExpressVPN. The best part is, using ExpressVPN, it's as easy as closing the bathroom door. Just fire up the app, click one button, now you're protected. ExpressVPN, it's the world's number one rated VPN by CNET, Wire, The Verge, and countless others. So if you're like me, and you believe that your online activity is your business, secure yourself today by visiting expressvpn.com Ben. Use my exclusive link, expressvpncom slash Ben. You can get extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash Ben. So obviously, all of this culminates in one of the great faux controversies of all time in which you're talking about uh, the latest blackface controversy in which somebody is caught years ago wearing blackface. I can't remember what the context was. I'm sure you will. Um, but you make the absolutely inarguable claim that it is different to dress up as Michael Jackson for Halloween than it is to dress up in 1920s style blackface in order to mock black people. And this results in NBC News basically using it as an excuse to get rid of you. Now, this is so non-controversial that I've point blank asked basically every Democrat I can find about this, ranging from Juan Williams to, to members of the general public. And they're all like, yeah, I mean, that is perfectly obviously true because anyone who has a sentient capacity, anyone who has a prefrontal cortex understands there's a difference between I dressed up as a person of color whom I admire and I'm dressing up as a person of color to mock people of color. There's a difference between Ralph Northam mm-hmm. dressing up as Michael Jackson and between Ralph Northam yeah. and dressing up as a stereotypical black person and or a KKK member. So that, like, the, these are yeah. very obviously different. You make this perfectly obvious point, a point also made by Joy Behar, who I noticed still works for Network News. And uh, and you were basically tossed out the window for it while they proclaimed that you were racist. I mean, what was all of that?
0: Well, I mean, you you have it basically right. I was I was on the what happened in terms of my presentation. I what happened was a Real Housewife, Luanne de Lesseps, was in the news for she dressed like Diana Ross, and she she tinted her skin. She actually just put on extra self tanner, um, so she did look darker than she normally does. And she had you know she looked like Diana Ross with the wig and the dress, and they were killing her. Keep in mind, by the way, this is a, this is a show produced by Bravo, which is owned by NBC um, Universal. And, and it was pre-taped and they put it on the air they put her on the air with the you know the tinted skin so that that was their decision she got a lot of blowback and I wanted to talk about it because we were talking about all the crackdowns on Halloween costumes We started that day with a, with a discussion about how over in the UK they sent out at some university a ban on like any costume that would uh, res- that would look like a cowboy because they didn't want you to offend American cowboys <laughs> in response to which every American cowboy was like, STFU, like, we don't need your help, please. Um, right? And, and they actually suggested to, the, to people that, you know, you might consider dressing as something non controversial, perhaps as a letter or a number. <laughs> That's where we've gotten on Halloween. And I was talking about how, like, the standards for what's offensive change. And not everybody understands when they're, when they're walking into something that you know, suddenly they're doing something that's awful. And I pointed to Luanda LeSep. So I'm like, this woman, she wore this. She's trying to honor Diana Ross. And you know, everything got blown up. And I said 30 years ago when I was a kid, the point I was trying to make was, you do that and, and like, there wasn't a lot of blowback. And uh, suddenly that became controversial. And then I said, you know, when, you look, when I look at her, I, look a, I see a woman who's trying to look just like Diana Ross. She loves Diana Ross and she's trying to honor her. So I, I didn't even really say, this is fine. I said, this is what I see. Tell me if I'm wrong. That's it. That is all that happened that day. And then when I, look, I looked in the newspaper headlines, it was basically like, Megan Kelly calls for a return to minstrel show blackface and, you know, <laughs> did the show in a KKK hat. You know, I was like, oh. <laughs> but honestly, <laughs> by that point, I was used to being misrepresented by the press. You know, I was like, everything they had said about me over the past year was untrue. And I had tried to just take the high road and not respond. And that was also what I felt I, I needed to do in that latest incident. I went back on the air the next day after being told by everybody there that I was hideous and that I had I said something terrible and did what I think is right, which is when you think you've genuinely offended a bunch of people, you should say you're sorry. And um, so I did. And then I had a panel on to talk about blackface, the history of blackface, and sort of get to the question I was asking, which is, how do we go from A to B? Right? And like, why is it people are associating skin tinting in a modern day costume meant to honor with this really controversial practice years ago? And I had a couple of black guests who explained that and their their opinion on it. Now, they may have, may or may not have persuaded people, but it was an interesting discussion. And, and then I was never back on the air again after that show. So I think for me, it was frustrating not to really be able to talk about it. I didn't I didn't know. I didn't think it would do me any good to come out and try to defend myself by saying. At that point, I did know that NBC had put several shows on the air with people wearing blackface. Like I knew Jimmy Fallon had done it, Um, and a couple of other people there had done it. And of course, there had been anchors wearing whiteface, like Lester Holt, who went as Bruce Jenner, um, and also as uh, the the woman from uh, what was it like American Idol? One of those shows, Susan Boyle. He went as Susan Boyle. But I was like, I don't want to start like firing at other anchors or other personalities like this that's not the answer here. And what I concluded was the people who are offended you know, by this or have chosen to believe I'm a racist because of remarks that have been totally misrepresented, or even if they think my actual remarks were, were racist, they're not persuadable. These are, these are not people who are open-minded to me. So what's the point of just screaming into the void? And the people who don't see any big deal of it don't, don't need to be convinced. They know who I am. You know, my actual audience, both at NBC and at Fox, they know who I am. They, they understood, like, this is something that was being used. It was being used against me by people who couldn't stand me. You know, the, the, the left who decided to generate this huge campaign, which, you know, might have otherwise just been a Twitter campaign had it not had buy-in elsewhere in cer- certain circles of power. Um, but when all was said and done, Ben, I was okay because I walked away, I did fine, and I was free. You know, I was free. And I, I've never been through an experience like I, I, was, I went through there. And I, I mean the whole year, not just that end. And I was relieved to just be out, to be back at my home, which is safe with my husband and my kids, and just take a breath to try to, try to regroup. Because it was just such a shocking, jarring, upsetting turn of events in my life. And I did. It took a while to sort of heal from that. To be honest with you, I'm not going to try to pretend I'm made of steel. It was it was hard. I shed a lot of tears, but I got through it. And I think, like anything, you go through these things, and hopefully, if you're smart, you don't get bitter, and you get better. You get smarter. And I think maybe one of the reasons I went through that, or at least a takeaway from it, is I get the whole cancel culture thing in a way I otherwise wouldn't have. I was never in favor of it, but I worry because. Obviously, I'm financially secure. I'm fine financially, and um, I'm I'm a public figure, so I landed on my feet, and I I have my own company now. So that's good. But what happens when this happens to a civilian, you know, somebody who doesn't have that kind of financial security, doesn't have that kind of platform of national name built up already? I feel like I need to help them. I feel a responsibility to call BS on what's happening to people in our country right now. I I'm worried about our country. I'm worried about the kids who get this, the teenagers who get maligned as awful bigots, racists, xenophobes, transphobes, just for having an opinion that may not go with the, you know, the mainstream now. How the media shames people out of an honestly held or a religiously held opinion on controversial issues. And it's going to get worse unless people speak up. So we have to find a way. We have to find a way of allowing that to happen without people getting fired all the time. And um, I don't know exactly what the answer is. I know that like Douglas Murray, he says, you know, when your company comes to you and says you've got to take critical race theory training, you have to look at them and say, I refuse to allow you to re-racialize me, my company, or my country. I refuse. It takes a lot of guts. That's tough. But we got to figure it out. And so that's one of the reasons why I came back and I'm doing my podcast and I, I have my say. You know, I have a platform where I can make these points.
1: Yeah, I, I will say that is in a certain sort of perverse stride and fright away, way, it's, it's, it's entertaining to watch the left eat its own on some of this stuff. My, my favorite story around that actually uh, surrounds that incident with you in which a Washington Post employee dressed up as you to try and mock you as racist. And then they were maligned by the other people at the party as racist. And there was like a full Washington Post investigation with heroic pictures of the people who complained about it. And it was like these big, beautiful photos. It's like, wow, okay, you, you want to take this to its logical extreme? I guess we're, I guess we're going to get there. Uh, you know, it, it, well, to what me you that was so about, funny you know? because
0: it's like, okay, she wants to go as me. She's trying to make a point about blackface. She wants to go as me. Was, I've never worn blackface, unlike half of Hollywood right. and NBC. Um, but like, why wouldn't she go as Justin Trudeau? Why, why wouldn't she go as Jimmy Kimmel? Why wouldn't she go as like Joy Behar? Why would not she go like those people actually wore it? So she's a little off the mark to start with.
1: But man, she paid, she paid right. the right no, price. Right. No, but even she 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 was she was trying to make a she was trying to make a far left wing point that was false about you and got and got yeah. eaten by the machine. Just, just as much. So I thought that that was a beautifully ironic <laughs> outcome to, to oh, that particular sister. scenario. When you talk about what's going to change, it, it seems to me that, unfortunately, it's going to have to get worse before it gets better. Not because the left is going to stop, but just because the, the left is, they, they've found that the best thing that they can do in order to gain power is to whine a lot and threaten a lot. And then corporations particularly are so vulnerable to this sort of stuff. I mean, just this week, Yelp decided that they were going to change their policy. And so now if there is a complaint about a restaurant that is reviewed by Yelp and somebody says a racist thing happened, Yelp will issue a warning on their website, warning everybody like an, an abuse notice on their website without any evidentiary basis that this place has been reported for racist activity. And then they have oh a higher God. level where if a media outlet reports the story, then they call it now a something like a confirmed incident of racism, even if it's just the outlet reporting the allegation. So we now have major American companies who have the lives of of other companies in their hands, basically uh, being willing to to throw out any allegation whatsoever by any rando. I mean, I think that until the right gets as whiny as the left, or at least attempts to utilize its market power in the same way as the left, which is something I don't actually want, uh, then I think this is going to continue because corporations have an absolute interest in catering to the whiniest among us.
0: I, and we have to somehow get through this because we, we believe in the First Amendment in this country and we believe in, in saying how we feel and having a diversity of opinion. And when you get to tough issues, being able to discuss them, that's an, an American principle. Never before has it been, we have a new way of thinking and you need to shut up. You, you need to not speak about it at all. You just accept my new way of thinking or you're awful, period. And canceled and maybe fired. How insane is that? You know, we do need more corporations with a backbone. Like I loved it when the Wall Street Journal... Stood up to its employees who were like throwing some fit about, I don't know, like maybe like a Heather McDonald op ed or some op ed in, uh, in their newspaper, like, it's not factual and we shouldn't have done this. And then like, there's 80 employees who were like, no. And the journal's like, I understand you're upset. So, anyway, that's what employers <laughs> need to do. Truly, like, the, you understand you're in the business of news, of like journalism, where we have to cover facts. And when we do opinions, we have to offer both sides. And it, it may upset you. Even in hiring for my company now, Ben, because I'm just launching a new company, I'm like, I'm talking to the young people saying, look, let's get this straight up front. If you are not in favor of the full discussion, like un- uncensored discussion of some of the most controversial things happening in the country right now, you shouldn't work here. If you're somebody who needs five compliments before I have to tell you what you did wrong, you shouldn't work here. If you need me to hold your hand when I tell you you have to work on a Saturday, you shouldn't work here. You're going to be challenged, you're going to be intellectually stimulated, you're going to have fun, you're going to learn, you're going to grow, you're going to get stronger but it's not going to be easy, right? More employers, I think, need to say that to their employees as opposed to like, you're special. You'll never be hurt. Your feelings will never be hurt. And you can just go to your safe space if anybody says anything that doesn't completely comply with the way you want it to be said. It's like, I don't want to live in this world. I don't want my kids to have to live in this world. So you're right. We have to stand up and fight because it used to just be academia and it crept into Hollywood. It took over news, and now it's taken over corporate America, not to mention half of sports. And if the, if the it's not even just the right, because I know a lot of liberals who are totally against this nonsense. You know, you look at the Harper's letter. But beyond that, just like center-left or just quote-unquote regular progressives, they don't like this nonsense either. It's this far-left contingent that has the loudest voice in the room, and people are listening to them because if you're the owner of a corporation and somebody's running in there saying... Racist, 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 and I'm hurt, and this is like I feel unsafe, and you make me unsafe if you don't, you know, do what I'm asking you to do. They're like, oh my God, people didn't used to drop charges like that unless it was really serious. Now it's morphed over into, you know, whatever you 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 come in and work with the black hat instead of the white hat, and somehow like you you've hurt somebody, you've made them feel unsafe. One of the things on that front is I'm really interested to watch what happens with Joe Rogan over at Spotify right? Because you've already seen the revolt of some of the Spotify employees against him. And he's basically like, yeah, too bad, pound sand. And so far, Spotify has had his back. So I really hope they stay steely spined and continue to have his back and set a lesson for other companies that if you're going to be in the business, of, especially of news and conversation, you have to be more open minded. And even any other corporation needs to stand up for what our American principles are. Well, this is not East Germany.
1: So let's talk about, you know, what it's like to be a woman in a, in a position of high responsibility and high power and high visibility. What do you think are sort of the special challenges that women face? And and when do you think that the allegations of sexism and the, and the obstacles faced by women go too far?
0: Well, I don't know if I can sum up all the challenges women face in, you know, a couple of sentences, but there's no question there are some. And that, that's sort of what I'm seeing with the racial discussion we're having now. There's no question there are still racists here in the United States, but I don't believe this is a racist country. And I feel the same about sexism. There's no question that there are sexists here in the United States, but we're not a sexist uh, country at all. So you have to deal with it on a case-by-case basis. But I would say in general, you know, men control most halls of power, most of the corporations. They still control most political bodies. And that does pose certain challenges for women that we have to figure out how to handle. The the vice presidential debate was interesting because I do think, and the studies do show that women get interrupted more than men, like at at the boardroom. The men will interrupt women more than they'll interrupt a man speaking. And um, I've actually in the past been a big advocate and remain one of that the tactic she used, which is just hand up, I'm speaking. And it does make people stop talking, stop interrupting you. But she overused it. And it was obviously a tactic. And she used it in a way, when it's a debate, the guy's allowed to jump in on the tail end of your thought. That's what a debate is. It's not like you're in front of a company saying, this is how I'm going to handle this situation. And all these guys are trying to jump in. That's when you're like, yo, not done. She's in a debate. Like, they overcorrected for what happened at the first presidential debate. Like, I wanted to hear more back and forth. It was too antiseptic and like, and now you should have the two minutes and now you shall have the two minutes. Like, it, they, they did, I, I have a lot of thoughts about the debates. But I'll say this about being a strong woman. Woman, You have to do it. You have to do it unapologetically. And that leads to some consternation in in certain circles. People aren't necessarily looking at a, a strong woman who's unapologetic about it in a way that's favorable. And I think that's led to some problems in my own life. Um, however, I, my, own, my own approach to all of that has always been to not boo and who and whine about it. Just be better. Just keep going. Just work harder. And, you know, now you get told, like, oh, you, well, that's a sexist comment. Like, screw you. You don't understand what most women are up against. Well, I think I understand pretty well. You know, I, I didn't come from some fancy, powerful family with big connections. I'm self-made entirely. And so I do understand. I understand how to get through a sexist encounter, how to, you know, sort of, as I said the other day, woman up, be my strongest self, and handle, handle tough circumstances. I I don't believe in the constant resort to victimization. I've been victimized again. I don't like identity politics. I don't like how people are making our lady parts, what we're all supposed to be about, or the people who want to make somebody's pigmentation, what they're all about. It's just it's it's completely disrespectful and diminishing. Um, There was one day at the in the Obama years where they invited like female reporters to come to the White House for like woman's day. And I was like, you know what? I'll go to the White House when I get invited as a reporter. That's when I'll go. I I don't want to go because I'm getting like, you know, I'm getting to check the box of of being, you know, having the right genitalia. So I get to go to the White House. No, I'm good. You call me when you want me for my brain, not for my lady parts. Um. (laughs) And I just think we're getting away from that now. It's just such a rush towards identity politics and victimization and finding your your posse who's also been victimized. And people think it's empowerment. And it's exactly the opposite. It's disempowerment.
1: So let's talk about the debates for a second since you mentioned them and since you've moderated presidential debates. Uh, Maybe you can evaluate how you think the uh, debate moderators have performed thus far. It seems like obviously Chris Wallace had a tougher job considering the uh, behavior during that debate. Uh, Susan Page had a, a much easier job, considering that that was one of the more, as you mentioned, polite and antiseptic debates I've ever seen on national television. How do you think the moderators are doing?
0: I think Susan Page did fine. You know, it was boring. Um, personally, I'm in favor of a spicier debate. That's just a, my own approach to it. But um, I think it was boring, but fair. I, I didn't think she was unfair. I went back and looked at the whole transcript of every question she asked, and I was like, it's fine. It's right down the middle. You know, her, her topic selection probably leaned more left than if you had, you know, a Fox News anchor doing it, but that's okay. That's whatever. People are used to that. It wasn't egregious. Um, Chris Wallace, he had a tough time. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know if he had planned for it. I, I'm surprised, actually, because when we prepared for our debates at Fox, we used to have discussions about, especially with Trump, what if he won't shut up? What if he tries to run over us? What if he won't stop interrupting? Like, we talked about all of that, and we came up with game plans. So I don't know if he didn't do that or if it was just at a level he you know, had never anticipated. Um, I happen, I happen to, to believe in cutting the mics and I think I wouldn't have been associated with a debate that didn't let me as the moderator control the cameras and the mics. Because you wouldn't believe how fast they stop talking when you, you take back control of the camera on you and the mics on you. Then they will stop talking quickly. <laughs> and you only have to do it once, you know, like, like being a parent. You know, you, you got to like show your kid you mean the threat one time and then they behave. So as long as you follow through on your threat, then every other time, the rest of the debate would have been much better, if, especially with Trump. If he knew he was going to lose the camera and lose his mic, he, he would have been more reasonable. And then and then you go from there. Then you then it's a judgment call. You can't sh- cut the guy off at every turn. You want to see him going back and forth. That's that's a highlight of a debate. Um, so I don't know. I, I love it's for me. It's frustrating because I love to get up, out there and do it myself, but uh, not this go round.
1: Yeah, what what do you um, make of the the complaints that I've put out there that there's too much emphasis on trying to get a quote unquote objective journalist doing the actual debate questions? That frankly, I'd rather see a debate moderated by Sean Hannity and Rachel Maddow than watch a debate moderated by Susan Page, because at least you know you're going to get the harshest version of the like. Just have Sean question Joe Biden and have Rachel Maddow question Donald Trump, and I think that'd be yeah. w- way more interesting and way more entertaining.
0: I'm against that as somebody who's in the middle. You know, I don't want that. Um, I'm going to select myself right out of the running. But I understand the <laughs> point. And I actually think um, maybe the solution is to have like a three-person panel where you have sort of a straight news journalist who is, you know, objectively straight news, not Don Lemon, right? Somebody who's actually straight news. Um, there's still a few of us out there. And then pundits, you know, from either side. But the question is, would you have, would you have Hannity question... Biden? Or would you have him question Trump? I think you'd have to have him question Biden, right? And then you right. have Maddow right. question Trump um, and see how they do. I think it'd be interesting. I think it'd be absolute war at the anchor desk, <laughs> but
1: it'd be interesting. <laughs> so in just one second, I want to ask you about how you balanced all of this with family. You mentioned family before and being a mom. And I want to hear about your perspective on balancing career and family, because I think one of the great lies of the 20th century is that everybody can have it all. And obviously, you have to find that balance. But if you want to hear Megan Kelly's answers, you have to be a Daily Wire member. Head on over to dailywire.com. Click join at the top of the page. You can hear the rest of our conversation over there. Megan Kelly, it's always great to talk to you. And of course, go listen to the Megan Kelly show over at Devil May Care Media. Make sure to check it out. Megan, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Ben. Lots of love.
1: Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is produced by Mathis Glover. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. And our assistant director is Pavel Wydowski. Associate producer, Nick Sheehan. Our guests are booked by Caitlin Maynard. Editing is by Jim Nichol. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Nika Geneva. Title graphics are by Cynthia Angulo. The Ben Shapiro Show Sunday Special is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. This show is brought to you by
2: helixsleep.com. Sleep is absolutely critical, especially as you get older, but no two people sleep alike. That's why Helix offers several different mattress models, each designed for specific sleep positions and preferences. Go to helixsleep.com slash dailywire and take their sleep quiz to find a mattress made for you. Whether you're a side sleeper, a stomach sleeper, a hot sleeper, or a cold sleeper, Helix has you covered. I took the Helix sleep quiz and was matched with a Helix Midnight Mattress because I want a medium firmness and a sleep on my side. So far, my new mattress is a godsend. Don't want to take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It's even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Take the quiz and order the perfect mattress right to your door, shipped for free. It's so quick and fun to unbox, you won't believe how well you sleep. All Helix mattresses come with a 100-night trial and a 10- or 15-year warranty. Helix even offers financing options and flexible payment plans. A great night's sleep is just a few clicks away. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com dailywire and use code HELIXPARTNER20. That's helixsleep.com dailywire code HELIXPARTNER20.